Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Marshall. I'm the senior pastor here. I'll be teaching on the passages that Walter just read for us. I want to add my welcome to all those of you who are here, especially those joining online today. My family is joining online today. They are in California, so uh, which means my sermon editor is in California as well. So I do want to make one more announcement. Uh, next week is we'll have a congregational meeting after our service. We'll keep the, uh, the, the tape running for those of you who join us online. Uh, but congregational meeting, a lot to update you on and inform you of. So I hope you can stay after the service uh, next Sunday for our congregational meeting. Let me pray before we look at these passages from the life of Jacob. Our great God, we, uh, we're covering a lot of decades, a lot of passages here. The end of Jacob's life, this man that we have been studying with and sojourning with for the last couple of months. And I pray that the lessons of his life are not lost upon us, but impressed upon our hearts. But more than that, God, I pray that the faithful God, who is faithful to Jacob through his wanderings, through his disobedience, even through his obedience, that you, God, would reveal yourself, encourage and renew our hearts, O God of Jacob. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. I have a first grade little boy, and we just finished reading uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. If you have never read the Chronicles of Narnia, no matter what your age, stop the book you're reading, pick up the Chronicles of Narnia, and read them. If you are a follower of Jesus, uh, you will resonate deeply with the messages there. And even if you are not sure about Jesus, and you're not sure what you think about Christians and Christianity... Uh, you will get a taste, an artful, though geared towards children, an artful taste of the Christian uh, worldview, the Chronicles of Narnia. And it's not my favorite book in the Chronicles, but the best opening line is for certain from the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. This is the opening line of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> now, Eustace is a boy you want to, as one blogger said, punch in the face. Eustace is nasty, he's tiresome, he is just unpleasant. But he is carted off in this magical world to the magical place called Narnia with his cousins. And at one point, Eustace is wandering into a dragon's lair and it is filled with great treasure, gold and silver and jewels. And he's greedy for that treasure. And so he lays down upon it and he falls asleep. And C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, says this is the narrator sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart. He became a dragon himself. Now, initially, Eustace likes being a dragon. He's big, he's scary, and he's strong. But he gets lonely. And so he decides he wants to go back to being a boy. And at this point, he encounters Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. And Aslan tells him to undress, to take off his dragon skin, like a snake shedding its skin. So I started scratching, Eustace says. I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. But then I looked down at my feet and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkly and scaly, just as they had been before. And he does this three times where he tries to undress himself. And what he found is that no matter how many layers of dragon skins he managed to peel off, he was still a dragon. Then the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. 
Eustace, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty near desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I have ever felt. The only thing that made it bearable was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. He peeled it right off. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found the pain was gone. And then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. And then a few uh, lines later, Lewis adds this narration, uh, which is a perfect echo of Jacob. It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. But to be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. End quote. Now that story, the story of Eustace, Eustace Scrub is kind of a summary or a metaphor, I don't know what the right word to use, for the life of Jacob. We've been studying Jacob and we've seen that Jacob is this nasty person who is twisted on the inside. There's this knot on him, inside of him, that takes a lifetime to untie. And we often see with Jacob, and we have seen, that he externalizes that nastiness. He externalizes that nastiness into other people's lives, in deception, in thievery, in cowardice, in fear, and in favoritism. But the unobligated God unconditionally accepts the undeserving Jacob. He sets his love and affection upon him, gives him his grace. And even as we will see in today's passages, slowly but surely, by God's grace, Jacob is transformed. To quote the missionary and martyr of the 20th century, Jim Elliott, it takes a whole life to make a life whole. It takes a whole life to make a life whole. Well, today, sadly for me, and I think for some of you, is the last in the sermon series uh, of Jacob. We've said this is a two-part series. Next week, we'll begin uh, Romans. Jacob has been the illustration of grace. Next week will be Romans. The, that, Jacob is the illustration of grace. Uh, Romans is the explanation of amazing grace. Today I'm covering a lot of ground, decades and decades of Jacob's life. But what I want us to see are four principles from the life of faith from Jacob and how God has been working in his life. First, I want us to see the life of faith is a life of repentance or a life of gospel renewal. Secondly, the life of faith does not insulate you from suffering and sorrow. Third, the life of faith tells a story of grace and rescue. And fourth, the life of faith is not actually about faith. But first, the life of faith is a life of repentance or a life of gospel renewal. I think those terms are actually interchangeable. Now, if you were here with us last week in Genesis 33, we saw Jacob reconciled to his brother. He has this great moment where he goes and he makes restitution, he asks forgiveness, and he is reconciled to this brother who he's done terrible things to. Genesis 33. Well, since that episode, Jacob, though, has begun to, well, he's begun to drift, to drift away from God, his promises and his grace. At the end of chapter 33, we saw this last week, 
Jacob does not fully obey God. God had told Jacob to go to Bethel, and Jacob goes halfway, but he doesn't go all the way there. And he actually stops and he sets up his home in a place called Shechem. He probably did this for financial reasons. Shechem was a commercial center, and he wanted to be close to that commercial center. But it was also a very wicked place, and that wickedness rubbed off on him and his family. It was a costly decision not to be fully obedient, because in Shechem, something that happened in Genesis 34 that I will probably talk about in the fall, I mean in the spring when we come back to Genesis and finish it, I'll I'll go back and do Genesis 34, I think, if I have the courage, Uh, because in Genesis 34, something awful happens in Shechem. His daughter, Jacob's daughter, is violently assaulted. Jacob does nothing to defend his daughter's honor. And in the face of his passivity, his sons take it upon themselves and they basically murder a bunch of Shechemites, people from Shechem. It's a terrible and awful story of evil, passivity, and sin. So which is to say that as we find Jacob at the beginning of chapter 35, Jacob is drifting. He is drifting away from, away from God. And you know, all it takes to drift, all it takes to drift is to do nothing. If you were to take a canoe and take it, not even to Lake Michigan, which is moving water, but if you were to take a canoe and just put it on a lake, a still lake, what would it take for it to drift? For you to do what? Nothing. You put it, you put it there and it'll just drift if you do nothing. Think about your marriage. Think about a romantic relationship. All it takes for the fires to grow cold is for you to do Nothing. All it takes to drift is to do nothing. And Jacob has done nothing, and he has drifted from God. But God, in his grace, speaks into Jacob's situation. He is calling to him again. Chapter 35, 1, the drifting Jacob hears this from God. Arise, Jacob. Verse 35, 1. Go to Bethel, dwell there, and make an altar there. Go there, where I told you to go a long time ago, by the way, Jacob, and worship there. And Jacob, to his credit, he obeys. This is actually the first instance we see of him spiritually leading his his family. Let me read verses 2 through 4 of chapter 35. So Jacob said to his household and to those who are within, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And what I want to see here in Jacob's action is a twofold movement. It's the movement of repentance. It's the movement of gospel renewal. It is putting away and burying idols, putting away and burying idols, and then it is putting on, putting on new clothes and worshiping. To use the New Testament language of places like Romans chapter 6, which we'll look at in about a month, and Colossians chapter 3, Jacob is told to put off, to put off his sin, his rebellion, his unrighteousness, his idols, to literally bury his idols. But then also the second half of gospel renewal dynamics and repentance is not just to put off those things in confession and repentance, but to also put on, to put on new clothes, to put on the love of God in Worship. Put off and put on. Now, you might be thinking, well, this is, this is kind of cute. Uh, they buried their little statues and they bought new clothes. Okay, that's what seems to be happening. They buried their little statues and they bought new clothes. 
Now, what are these statues? Likely these were, Rachel probably brought these with her, by the way. That's a, another story from earlier in Genesis. But she brought these with They would have likely been statues of bulls and pregnant women and virile and strong men. Statues that symbolized fertility, prosperity, strength, security, and pleasure. And they would have worshipped these statues because that is what they wanted. Prosperity, security, strength, fertility, pleasure. And friends, we don't have totem poles, most of us, I imagine. But we certainly have things that we look to for prosperity, for strength, for security, for pleasure, for fertility. What is the equivalent of a bull statue in your life, in mine? Maybe it's your addiction to your work, your need to achieve at all costs. Maybe it's an addiction to internet pornography. Maybe it is some substance that you just can't give up because it brings you so much pleasure, numbs the pain in your life. And the call of God to this drifting man and drifting people like me and like you is to renew our love for him by burying our idols, by burying our idols and moving towards him and clothing ourselves in his love. And friends, it's not just what we put off, but it's also what we are called to put on. I think in our church we talk a lot about putting off, repentance, we're Presbyterians, we're good at confession. <laughs> but we need also that putting on. So let me ask you a question. Are you drifting today? Are you drifting today? And it doesn't have to be like a rank egregious sin. I mean, Jacob's sin in other places is egregious, but here his sin was doing nothing. His sin was allowing his love for God to simply grow cold. He did nothing and he drifted. Are you drifting today? Well, of course you are. We all are. We all drift. And so the question then becomes, what do you need to bury and what do you need to put on? Now, Jacob's problem, he had drifted by where he chose to live into being like a Canaanite. Okay, that's the land. His habits had become like the pagan Canaanites around him. And gospel renewal, gospel renewal means creating new habits, putting off old habits, the habits of the Canaanites, and putting on new habits, new habits, new clothes even. The Old Testament commentator Walter Brueggemann says that God's people, this is said a lot of different ways, a lot of different places, but we're not called to be separate from the world, but we are called to be distinct. We're called to have clothes that look different. They put on new clothes so that they would look different, to be distinct from the world. So what does it look like for you to put on the clothes of righteousness? Brueggemann goes on to talk about the need for radical symbols that show that we're not separate from the world, but that we are distinct from the world if we're followers of Christ. A couple things to suggest real quickly. One, these are all one directly from the text here first, is worship, being with God's people on the Lord's day. This is a place that we come together and our hearts are renewed. Because yes, of course our hearts drift. But we come to this place not to learn. I hope you learn a little bit from my sermons. But the worship service is not about learning. It is about loving. <laughs> loving God, being reminded of our true love and moving away from that drifting, doing something and moving towards God. 
A couple other things, real quickly. These are the two that really were, that marked the people of the Old Testament. One way to be distinct in this culture is to have Sabbath rest. To have Sabbath rest. That your neighbors look at you and you think, why do those people not work that day? Why do they not have activities that day? For me, it can't be the Sunday. I work today. But for you, it's probably today, the Lord's day. But the way that we, we live is that we turn off our technology. We, whatever it looks like to rest and be distinct, to rest. It, was, it actually was, in the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, it was what set the people apart. A third thing, and this is really what set the New Testament Christians apart, was their radical generosity. Their radical generosity. They knew how much they'd been given, and so they gave away, not just to churches and to nonprofits, but in every aspect of their lives, they were radically generous. Not to be separate from the world, but to be distinct. Not to just to put off sin, but to put on the new affections, holiness, righteousness. Recipe for being distinct. A pattern of gospel renewal. So the first thing is, the first principle from we learn from Jacob is the life of faith is one of gospel renewal dynamics, of repentance. But the second thing, and a little more soberly, is this. The life of faith does not insulate you from suffering and sorrow. Look with me at chapter 35, verse 16. This is a, this is a passionate scene. They are traveling to their destination as God has commanded and as Jacob has obeyed. And Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, goes into labor. She gives birth to a son she gives him a name, knowing that she is dying. Her name is Ben Anoy, which means the son of my sorrow. And then she dies in childbirth, on the way to worship. It's a tender scene. Jacob is holding his newborn son next to the dead body of his beloved wife. And in a culture where names meant so much and shaped people's character, he had the good sense to rename his son Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. He knew this little boy, even in the midst of that pain, did not need to go through his life being called sorrow, but son of my right hand. It is a poignant scene filled with pathos, with sorrow, with real grief. But almost as soon as the funeral is over, we read verse 22. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Now, Israel is Jacob. Now, Reuben was Jacob's oldest son. And if you were to turn back to Genesis chapter, Leah's oldest son and Jacob's. Genesis chapter 30, this poor little teenage boy in Genesis chapter 30, he had been the one who had found the mandrakes, the fertility treatment. And he had been the one who had brought the fertility treatment into the camp that becomes this war between his mom and his stepmom, Rachel and Leah. That poor little teenage boy. Who was Bilhah? Bilhah was the maidservant of the recently deceased Rachel. She was one of Jacob's wives or concubines at the very least. The mother of two of his children, two of Reuben's brothers. And because she was Rachel's maidservant, she was a candidate to be a new wife for Jacob. And Reuben goes in and he sleeps with Bilhah. Now he does not do this because of lust. He does this because of power. This was a power move. 
He was aiming to establish authority and power over his brothers and most likely Jacob himself, his own father he's trying to overthrow. And it says that Jacob or Israel knew of it, but apparently did nothing. It is a sad and evil episode. But it makes sense of what Jacob, when Jacob describes his life to Pharaoh several chapters later in Genesis 47. Look with me at Genesis 47. It makes sense. The death of his beloved wife, the birth of his son, the outrage of what his son does to offend him. Genesis 47 verse 8, and Pharaoh, Jacob is now in Egypt. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days, the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and evil have been the years, the days of the years of my life. Now, I don't think I need to say a whole lot here because you know this, you feel this. And if you're ever tempted by what they call the prosperity gospel, which is that if you just trust God and follow God, things will be well, that is a false statement of everything the Bible teaches. You see, the life of faith and grace does not insulate us from suffering. Whether it's infertility or death or sickness or people hurting us. In fact, suffering and sorrow are oftentimes how God grows his people. It's worth quoting from the old hymn by John Newton. It's well written enough that I can just quote this. John Newton, a couple hundred years ago. This is one of his hymns. The poetry just flows. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray and he I trust has answered prayer. But he was in such a way that almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour he'd answer my request. And by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, God made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. Let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed. Humbled my heart. Laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will you pursue me to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayers for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break the schemes of earthly joy that you will find your all in me. You see, friends, the life of faith is not only not insulated from pain and suffering. Sometimes and most often, God, friends, I, I don't even know if I can look at you when I say this. But God, the pain and suffering in your life is God's prescription. It is his prescription, his medicine for the healing of your soul. Well, Jacob's suffering continues after Genesis 35. And the years that follow Genesis 35, we'll come back to this story in the spring. But he loses, he thanks forever to death, his beloved and favorite son, Joseph. Because of a famine, Jacob is forced to move again to a foreign country. For the second time in his life, he becomes a refugee. Like so many in our world, forced to seek a better life in a foreign country. But it brings us to the third principle. After all these things, he's now in Egypt, fleeing a famine, reunited with his son who he thought was dead for many years. And the third principle is the life of faith tells stories of rescue and redemption. 
let me begin by asking a question. How do you tell your story? How do you tell your story? We tend to tell either hero stories, I beat the traffic, or victim stories, traffic was awful. I'm such a victim. And I will just say, somewhat, maybe humorously, maybe not, if you tend to be a little bit older, you tend to tell hero stories. If you've been younger, you tend to tell victim stories. But the stories we should not tell are stories of being a hero or being a victim. The stories we should tell are the stories of redemption and of rescue. So let's look at Genesis 48. Genesis 48, Jacob is an old man now. He is blessing his sons and grandsons. He's speaking to his son and his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are sitting on his knee. He's telling about his life and he's telling the true story of his life. And let me just say this to the grandparents in the room and to the aunts and uncles in the room. When you deal with your nieces, your nephews, and your grandchildren, tell them the truth about your life. Give them the gift of the truth about your life. And tell it not as a story of being a victim or a hero, but tell them as a story of rescue and redemption. I have, like everybody, two grandfathers. I knew both of them. One of them was a hero and a very distant figure. The other was near, and he was broken. He was gnarly. He, there were some things about him that were not terribly attractive. But he told me the truth about himself, and he told me the truth about his God, always pointing to that God. But let's see what Jacob says. Jacob blessed Joseph, verse 15. I'm looking at verse 15, and he said, The God before whom my fathers and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from evil blessed the boys, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, this probably should be its own sermon because this is fascinating. Genesis 48, in this scene, this scene of Jacob with his grandsons on his knees, talking to his son standing right here, his grandsons on his knees, this is the moment that the New Testament author of Hebrews says is the defining moment of, Hebrew, of, of Jacob's life. This, this moment is the defining moment according to the New Testament of Jacob's life. Not the stairway from heaven. Not wrestling with God. Not blessing Pharaoh. Here, when he is passing the blessing down to his son and his grandsons. This is the key moment of faith for Jacob. And why is that? First of all, because Jacob is not telling a hero story or a victim story. He is telling a story of redemption. You see that word redeem right in the middle of this story. He says, the Lord has redeemed me. The angel of the Lord redeemed me. But there's also this. This is an acknowledgement by Jacob that God's gracious hand has been in his life all his life. To quote Jacob, God has been my shepherd all my life to this day. This is Jacob's great profession of faith. What Jacob is saying is that everything that has happened to me has been from God, for God, and ultimately even for my good. God was my shepherd when he allowed me to lie and steal from, ja from my brother Esau. God was my shepherd, Jacob is saying, when he allowed someone else to lie to me, Laban. God was my shepherd when he ascended me away from my mother, never to see her again. God was my shepherd when I drifted from him, when I was passive and fearful and deceitful when I showed favoritism. God was my shepherd when I suffered when my wife died, 
when my son tried to usurp me, when I thought Joseph was dead, when I was two times a refugee. God was my shepherd all the days of my life. And he has brought me to this point. The Lord is my shepherd. And some days he leads us into green pastures. And sometimes he leads us in the valley of the shadow of death. As one of the preachers on this passage I heard said, the most pivotal thing in your life is not what happens in your life. It's not what happens in your life. It's how you interpret the events that happen in your life. Do you believe that all your life God has been your shepherd? No matter the crosses, no matter the suffering, no matter the evil that you have even perpetrated, do you realize that your sin is a part of God's redemptive story in your life? Everything is a part of the story. And Jacob, at the end of his life, it takes a whole life to make a life whole. Jacob has learned to look at everything in his life and see that God is his shepherd, whatever has come his way. He's not the hero. He's not the victim. He has been redeemed by the shepherd. Everything that happens, the Lord has been my shepherd. Maybe it's financial loss. Maybe it's students you don't get into the college you want to get into. Maybe your heart has been broken romantically. Maybe it's a breakup. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's the, the, the stigma, the, the pain of infertility. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's chronic pain. Maybe it's death of a loved one. But can you say, God has been my shepherd? It takes a whole life to make a life whole. It took Jacob his whole life to see this. But here, and the New Testament confirms that this is the moment for Jacob where he says, the Lord has been my shepherd all the days, all the days of my life. Which brings me to the final thing I want to say about Jacob in this sermon series. We've seen that the life of faith is a life of gospel renewal, repentance. The life of faith is not insulated from suffering. And the life of faith tells stories of redemption and rescue, not heroes and victims. But ultimately, friends, the life of faith, it's not about your faith. <laughs> this is the best news I can give you. The life of faith is not about you. It is not about you. Now, I've, I thank you so much. I've received a ton of encouraging feedback. You've loved this sermon series. I've loved this sermon series. A couple of you have even come up and said, I'm Jacob. I am Jacob. I'm deceitful. I'm hurting. I'm broken on the inside. Some of you are like me. I am Esau. I'm self-righteous. I am Jacob. Yes, those are all true. I'm glad you resonate with Jacob and Esau. But don't miss the main point, which is Jacob's God and his faithfulness to Jacob. It's not about Jacob's faith. It's about how Jacob has been, how God has been faithful to Jacob. And faithful even in ways, I mean, Jacob tries to stand in the way of God's purposes, and yet God continues to push on Jacob. I called this series Amazing Grace because of the hymn. I kind of wanted to call it, Ian Duguid calls his book this title, Relentless Grace. It's grace that won't give up on Jacob. It just keeps on going. Relentless grace. God will not give up on Jacob and friends. He will not give up on you. <laughs> he won't give up on you. No matter where you are today, far, drifting, you don't even want to, you want to walk out right now. God will not give up on you. Because what does Jacob's story point forward to? It points forward to Jacob's great, 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 great grandson, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who would finally be the faithful Israelite, the heir of Jacob. 
who like Jacob would sojourn in Egypt, who like Jacob had a life filled with suffering and sorrow to Jesus. But instead of being the redeemed, Jesus is the redeemer. God is faithful unto us in that he gave us his son to die for us, to be raised for us, to forgive our sins, to give us life. God has been faithful in the person, in the work, in the crucifixion, in the resurrection of Jesus. God is the faithful one. He holds on to us. We do not hold on to him. And that, friends, is the message of the life of Jacob. A faith, a faith in a God who is faithful at all cost, giving us everything, even his own son. This has been a lot of fun. The life of Jacob, an illustration, an illustration of God's grace. And just remember that definition. Unconditional acceptance of undeserving persons by an unobligated God, which slowly, often painfully, transforms us to be more like our God. Pray with me. God, thank you for these stories. Thank you for Jacob that put flesh and blood on what faithfulness and grace look like. But most of all, we thank you, Father, for your Son, Lord Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you that you gave yourself the faithful one for us who are faithless that we might know your goodness and mercy. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.